Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, it's me, Amara. Welcome to the Translash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. As we get ready to celebrate the new year, I don't know about you, but I'm reflecting on 2022, but more importantly, my year here with you. Now, at Translash, we've done a lot this year, including our award-winning short film series, Trans Bodies, Trans Choices, as well as new editions of our zine, and the launch of our new written essay and news analysis platform, Translash News and Narrative, We also received an award for season one of our limited series, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, from the Association of LGBTQ Journalists. Incidentally, y'all, season two of that series will be coming out in March of next year. Also, just for me personally, I won the Journalist of Distinction Award from the National Association of Black Journalists, making me the first out trans person to receive a nod from that organization ever. But... All of this was taking place against the backdrop of a turbulent year for all of us. There were setbacks in the control of our bodies, attacks on our community, and of course, a topsy-turvy election, which just ended a couple of weeks ago. But through it all, we've been there right with you all, keeping the important conversations and the trans positivity going with this podcast. That's why I... And the entire Translash team thought that it would be a great time to take you through some of my favorite moments and to revisit some of the most critical stories of the year. Before we get to that, though, I just want to take a moment to give a big shout out to our listeners for supporting us and spreading the word about this podcast. And also for everyone who works on the Translash podcast, please listen to the credits and listen to their names. This show doesn't function without their incredible contribution, and I hope that you will go find out who they are and recognize them. I also want to reflect on just the ongoing importance of this podcast for me, not only for me right now, but for me when I was a child, because I often think that if I had known about this podcast When I was a teenager, I was nerdy and I used to listen to the news a lot. So yeah, I would have been in podcasts when I was 15, 16, 17. It would have actually made a big difference for me. So I come to this microphone every two weeks with as much as understanding the importance of this podcast for all of the people who are out there like me, who needed a lifeline in situations where they couldn't be themselves. And the ability to do that every two weeks just fills me with so much gratitude. And I know that everyone at Translash feels the same. So with that, let's get to some of my favorite moments.
The first segment I'm going to share with you today is from an episode that was especially powerful for me. It's about trans motherhood. I think that what's powerful about trans people is our ability to move definitions beyond the narrow confines in which they originated. And the idea of motherhood is so much larger than who can give birth and who doesn't. There are so many families across the country in which people are raised by grandparents or aunts or caring adoptive parents even. And those people are just as much mothers as people who can or choose to give birth. And so it's really important for us to explore that as a concept and to raise the mothers in our community up. That's why I sat down with an incredible woman who's a pillar of our entire community. Kayan Dorishow. Kayan is a performer, activist, and organizer in the trans and sex workers' rights movements. Because of her visionary work, GQ magazine called her the godmother of the Black Trans Lives Matter movement. She's also the founder and executive director of GLITS, Gays and Lesbians Living in a Transgender Society, which provides housing to Black trans individuals in need. Kayan is a powerful force who's helping our communities rethink and expand what a family can look like. And I'm honored to be able to share this exchange from a conversation I had with her earlier this year on our Trans Mother's Day episode. What does mothering mean to you personally? And what does that look like in terms of how it guides you in your life and your work? Because there are literally countless people in New York, dozens and dozens, hundreds of people for whom you have served that role. So I'm just wondering for you, where does that come from and how do you define it? It comes from a lack of support as a youth. It comes from, you know, my own oppression early on. It comes from that sense of security in parenting when we were parented way before we had gender pronouns, (laughs) parented way before I became transgender and wasn't a transvestite or drag queen, according to society. So my parenting, it's odd, but it's kind of an iron hand. I really look for the best in community. If we inspire community to inspire themselves, I can't do the work. You have to do it for you. And I parent that way. But certainly if you show me you are looking at tomorrow differently, then I can help you get there. So you grew up in Bushwick, New York, Uh, neighborhood, as you said, that wasn't always the most supportive in you being you. And I am putting that mildly and kindly. The violence that you faced in so many ways was real. And I'm wondering if that was a part of what encouraged you to be what you didn't receive in your community for other people, or if it was something else. I was brought up kind of in that threshold of change where girls were just starting to express themselves but still being thrown out and ostracized by their families. Because of the oppression, I suffered from addiction, domestic violence, parental abuse, 
mental abuse. And you go through enough and decide enough is enough. And I didn't want anybody else to go through that. I didn't want my friends to go through that. So I kind of wanted to be sort of like a caretaker to community that was in crises. Does not always work out well. But nine times out of 10, we have to be happy for the eight, nine, and 10 that really get it. Mm-hmm. So for the people that you help pull across the finish line in some way. I mean, one of the things that I'm curious about is how did you become the go-to person in New York for people who were in distress and crisis for being literally Black and trans? I think I, I first heard about you as the person who people could call if they were coming out of Rikers. That was that was actually how I first heard about you. How this started was people were calling me from other countries. Huh. I had always traveled and did outreach wherever I was at. And I recorded it. I put it on social media. I started to get calls from trans women in crises from all over the world. And then I figured out a way to get them here through conversation, through understanding. I can't just bring you here for nothing. And from bringing you here, you got to go to school. You got to do something with your life. Otherwise, there's no need. And it started that way. And so then everybody started calling me, ironically. And then COVID happened. And of course, With a pandemic, my heart was broken when I had already seen these terrible numbers of people dying out here. I seen our queer community die in jail, our trans community die in jail. So me and a group of volunteers and wonderful people in New York City and around the world decided to bail them out, a bailout fund, so they could isolate in place, rented Airbnbs to put them in so they could sustain, gave them a Amazon account so they can order what they need to sustain, also gave them cash allotments so they all had cash to sustain while COVID was going on. And all of this without being policed. So imagine having somebody or an organization like Glitz step up privately. I'm not a government-funded organization, but seeing the need to sustain people getting out of jail when we have all these orgs in New York City that did not do that work, that didn't care enough about humanity, people behind bars, to do that work. Next on... Our look back, I'm reflecting on another powerful conversation from another organizer helping to build up our community and providing critical resources while doing so. Artist, organizer, and party curator extraordinaire Asani Aman joined me for the Trans Mutual Aid episode, and it was a banger. Asani is the founder and head doll in charge at For the Girls. Yep. That's their real title, a Brooklyn-based series of iconic mutual aid fundraising parties. During our conversation, Asani laid out how they took their mutual aid effort from a tiny local operation and scaled it to center community needs rather than appealing to the nonprofit industrial complex for support. Here's Asani in talking about how they got started and grew their mutual aid efforts. 
in 2019, I remember being in therapy, venting to my therapist about how I could possibly help two of my friends who were facing eviction. Both of them were black trans femmes. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do because I I live with two other people. We have no space in that apartment, so I can't take in either one of them. I don't know what to do. And the thought just kind of fell on me to host a party. This was right before the 4th of July in 2019. And so I left therapy and immediately hit one person up and asked them if they could help me with a flyer, hit up up a mod, tell me with the flyer. And we put out a flyer like the next day to advertise a 4th of July rooftop party where we would be fundraising the money for those two people. And really, the rest is history. We probably made a little bit over half of the money we needed prior to the party even starting. And then by the time the end of the party had come around, we had to fundraise well over what those two people needed, at least for that month. And so I gave them the money. And while I was at the party, another good friend of mine, she said that she thinks she thought that we should try to do this party every month because it would just give space for black trans people to meet. And also it would give space for like people to kind of fundraise to help people in our community. When did you realize that this was moving beyond something that you were doing for your friends and your immediate community to something that was much larger, to something that was going to raise millions of dollars and be a nationwide effort, that this was no longer about you and your immediate community in Brooklyn, that it was much larger than that? Very early on, I want to say maybe month two or month three. At first, it was just people who were that I knew that were hitting me up for help. And then it started being people that I didn't know, like the word was traveling outside of New York. And we started to turn to crowdfunding as a way of helping people, too, because just hosting one party a month was not going to help as many people as we were getting. And so that's when I started to have to create a list of people. And this is how much this person needs and this is how much this person needs, et cetera, et cetera. That was probably around the third month. And then... The pandemic happened, and at that time, we were kind of steadily growing. At that point, we probably had like 3,000-ish followers. March of 2020 is when I got physically sponsored by the first organization that I worked with, and I kind of, in my head, knew if this was going to be sustainable, I couldn't really only rely on crowdfunding. I had to start trying to reach out to grant makers and figure out how I could get institutional funding to back this thing, which was its own separate beast and was really, really difficult. But then June of 2020 is when everything took off simultaneously. Everything kind of kicked off in June with the murder of George Floyd and white Americans in general were starting to kind of get this idea that, oh, wow, maybe the state is failing us too. (laughs) Not just these black people, but it's failing us too in the way that we're not getting any real assistance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so simultaneously, the first week of Pride, I can't remember, I think it might even been the first day, I put out an ask for a black trans woman who I was helping to get paid for her affirmative surgery. And it just went viral everywhere, even really within minutes, like within maybe the first hour, we just started seeing all these donations coming in very quickly. And then things have kind of just taken off ever since. One of the things that I find really interesting is that sometimes there can be a resistance in our community actually towards institutionalization. And one of the things that you made a very conscious choice of was in your own words, as you just told us, that if this was going to be sustainable, it had to be something that was organized and had an infrastructure. And I want to just hear a little bit more about that choice that you made 
Because one of the things that it's allowed you to do is to raise so much more money and to help so many more people. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. No, I thought it was super necessary. Again, within the third month is when we started really getting people outside of New York. And I was like, okay, well, this has kind of gotten bigger than me. And I can either be like, you know what? No, I'm not doing this. Or I could be like, uh, actually, someone has to step up and try to do something different. And I chose to do the latter. But to that point, I understood very clearly, like, if we were making four digits from a party, but people are asking me for $2,000 for rent or something like that, you know, of course, I don't have to meet every person's need, but we should be trying as best as possible. And I know that there are these grant makers who are giving out $10,000, $50,000, $75,000, whatever, whatever, dollars per grant. And it just made more sense to try to go the institutional route, to think bigger, to think grants, to think these larger grant makers who have all these millions of dollars just sitting here and pretending that they don't know who to give it to and how to give it to anybody. And so what that meant for me was I didn't necessarily want to be a nonprofit and go the nonprofit route because I know very clearly how the nonprofit industrial complex works and how it is usually a front in order to give somebody a salary and to give somebody access to a lot of money without actually doing anything with it. So I didn't want to go that route. I wanted to keep my organization in a place that was still trustworthy, but still be able to access this institutional funding. So what that meant for me was being fiscally sponsored by someone who was nonprofit, who I could trust to, if we're getting these donations coming in, or if I'm getting these grants coming in, you take your small percentage and I still have access to the rest of this money and I don't have to deal with the governmental implications of it too much. You handle that part. Just give me the rest of the money and I know what to do with it as long as I can provide receipts and I can provide proof of need, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just kind of knew early on it was important to think larger if I wanted to make something that was sustainable for people. Continuing our rewind, we're going to explore two major stories that shaped trans life in the United States this year, and then we'll end our rewind on a note of celebration and trans joy. We know that y'all thought we weren't going to do it because we didn't do it at the beginning, but we mixed it up and caught you off guard. One of those big stories for our community this year was, of course, monkeypox, a disease disproportionately impacting trans communities and specifically trans communities of color. Despite this, the response from the public health communities largely ignored and erased us. I sat down with two incredible public health experts to discuss why this is, its consequences, and why it's so vital that trans people of color are centered in these conversations. In our episode called Monkeypox and the Trans Community, I first spoke to Dr. Asa Radix, the Callan Lord Community Health Center's Senior Director of Research and Education. Dr. Radix has been working on the front lines of the monkeypox outbreak. Here's part of that conversation. Working in marginalized communities and trans and black and brown communities and queer communities for decades... After having just come through COVID, after kind of the exponential rise in monkeypox cases over the summer, I'm just wondering from your own personal standpoint of all that experience and everything that we have been through, when you look out at what your greatest kind of frustration is from everything that you've learned from your career and everything we've learned over the last three years, what is that? Oh, 
<laughs> this, this is a tough one. I mean, I want to start by saying most healthcare providers are absolutely exhausted. Many of us are feeling that we're on the front lines and doing what we can, but just the infrastructure around us is failing our communities. As soon as monkeypox arrived in the United States, and we didn't even need to wait, like we knew when we saw it in Europe, we knew it was going to be here in a minute. Start with the response right away. I worry that we receive a lot of mixed messages around it. A lot of the same mistakes keep happening and it's really frustrating. And I'll just give you one example. When monkeypox kind of became a reality, we were filling out forms from the CDC to provide treatment that had two boxes, male and female. And the first thing that we said was, what does this even mean? You know, how can we even track how this is impacting people in our communities who do not identify this way? We saw the same thing with COVID. So why do we have another outbreak and we're seeing the same thing again? You know, in fact, we've seen 11 people who identifies trans or non-binary receiving treatment at Kalanur at a time when you couldn't even document that they were folks of trans experience. So mm. again, it seems that the greater public health world doesn't care about us if they're not even interested in tracking who's being impacted, who's receiving vaccinations, and who's receiving treatment. You know, I'm glad to say that that's all been remedied now. But it took several months of advocacy to make that change. And we didn't need to wait. Like that should have been available at the very beginning. We know that there are going to be disparities. Sometimes I wonder if by not counting, people pretend that the disparities don't exist, but we know they do. You need to do that. You need to check. You need to ensure that people have access. When the vaccines first became available, they were for men who have sex with men. We know that trans men were able to access vaccines. Transgender women weren't actually listed as a community mm. who should access. And of course, now that's being corrected. But again, like, why did we need to wait? During the same episode on monkeypox, I also had an important and illuminating conversation with Dr. L. Lett. She's a Black trans woman statistician, epidemiologist, and a physician in training. I mean, it's three jobs in one. She spoke about the need to destigmatize public health responses in the fight against monkeypox. Dr. Lett is also a force pushing for better healthcare and data in the medical field. And here's what she had to say about all of that in regards to monkeypox. What are the major barriers to them serving us that we need to change? I mean, you're unique for our community in so many ways, but you shouldn't be, right? We should live yeah. in a world where there are thousands and thousands of you, where we have people who are Black and trans and who are epidemiologists and statisticians and who are trained in public health and who are doctors, right? There should be many, many more of you. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, which is unique, like what do we need to change about this medical establishment so that it can better serve us? So I think some of those things are happening. I'm a cynic, but I think some of those things are happening and it's painfully slow and really challenging. Sometimes I get emotional when I think about it, but there are more trans people coming into the world of 
medicine, and public health. I mentor Black trans folks and their journey to make it a little bit easier for them. And so our community has, against unfair odds, continued to push these doors and create more space for us. And I think as we rise to power, I think those changes will necessarily have to happen because we think differently, we work differently, we care differently. And when we're in control, we will be in a more inclusive medical system. I have to believe that. But in tandem to that, we have to mobilize across the avenues of legal work and things like that to force better treatment. Putting on my public health kind of nerd hat just for a second, data collection around trans people expands and contracts based on the administration in charge. And so under Obama, we had trans people included in more data sources, some of the main sort of public health databases we use to study populations. And then under Trump, that moved back. And so we got to keep pushing those political levers because what's not measured can't be changed. So we have to keep pushing that advocacy button through different policy levers. Like I would love to see a trans question on the census. Like once that happens, a lot of floodgates can open around public health. This is going to be a tough question. I'm here for it. One of the things that keeps sticking with me is the dismissal in media about the impact of monkeypox on people and on bodies. Mm. I also had this this uh, question for Dr. Raddix, but also want to pose it to you through a slightly different door, given where you sit. I've heard from so many different places where when someone says, well, what's the impact of monkeypox? The first person says, well, this isn't like COVID and you're not going to die. And there's a dismissal that if it doesn't kill you, then it's not really a big deal. Mm-hmm. There's a sneaking suspicion that I have that a part of that dismissal is because it's believed to be localized in certain marginalized communities. And that there is a dismissal of pain of Black people, there's a dismissal of pain of trans people. We know that there's a dismissal of pain of gay men, which we have seen for decades through the AIDS crisis. And I was like, if this was in a different population, would we be dismissal of the fact that people experience pain that they've never experienced before, that people can experience brain infections from this, be immunocompromised after this disease, like very serious things. But when I turn on CNN or when I open the New York Times, there's just this dismissal of the seriousness. Whew. Um, You opened up a big can there, and I'm happy to dive in. So with covid Honestly, I see all this stuff on the same continuum, and it's just that we care less about the marginalized as a society. We are in this capitalist sort of framework that we will sacrifice people on the margins if we can maintain the status quo. And in COVID, that looked similar, where a lot of people who were more likely to die had multiple comorbidities or were disabled. And so we thought about, oh, well, it's okay for them to die. Well, because they were sick already. That's the implicit narrative of us going back to things as normal. And then you point out another thing that death isn't the be-all, end-all for anyone. Like, COVID was so disabling. We have a huge population of people who are going to be disabled. And in translating that to monkeypox, you talked about all these other ways in which we're going to create a disabled sort of underclass of folks because of monkeypox. And because they're concentrated in this silo of folks who aren't valued by society in general, trans people, gay people, Black trans people, we're okay accepting that. And I want to point out that 
Skin legions and scarring is disfiguring. That is a awful experience to have permanent scarring that cuts into your mental health, especially with trans people who are already dealing with dysphoria and have higher dysmorphia rates as well. Like a disease that scars you is also bad for those reasons too. It's because the people who are sort of deciding what we prioritize aren't members of the most impacted groups. If monkeypox was sweeping through everyone, we would see a totally different response. So you hit it right on the head. The degree to which we respond as a society is directly related to how much we care about the people disproportionately impacted. And I'm sad to say that's not nearly enough. Next, before getting to trans joy, I want to delve into one of the biggest stories of our time. That's the story of anti-trans information, how it's spreading like wildfire and putting lives at risk. This is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and fighting against in the work that I do. But to understand the impact of all of this vitriol aimed at our community, we have to unpack it. That's why I'm sharing a short segment with you today from my conversation with journalist Sydney Bauer. She's a transgender journalist and researcher based in Atlanta, Georgia, whose work focuses on the genesis of anti-trans rhetoric, online harassment, and legislation. Sydney advised us on our award-winning investigative series, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine of Plot Against Equality, and she came on the Translash podcast for our episode called The Evalde Shooting Leads to Online Trans Hate to lay out how misinformation about the shooter was being spread from the dark online corners of the internet to social media, and ultimately, to a member of Congress. For me, as I began to look further into this, there began to be actually pretty good reporting from Newsweek, from NBC News, about the fact that uh, the shooter, Salvador Ramos, was being portrayed online as a trans person, and that a person by the name of Sam, who is a trans person who's experienced multiple harassment, was the person who was being used as the source material for doctoring photos and all of the rest of it. And then what shocked me is how, despite some of that early online reporting, Representative Paul Gosar who is labeled as one of the most conservative members in Congress by conservatives, <laughs> began to say early on that this person was trans. Uh, he actually said, quote, in a tweet, it's a transsexual leftist illegal alien named Salvatore Ramos. And I'm wondering, how does that happen with such speed? How does it go from, it's on 4chan, and then there's reporting even early on saying, hey, this is happening, it's false. But then despite that, a congressperson picks this up and tweets it out. And then, you know, it went like wildfire on conservative websites and even other people like Candace Owens. And it happened within hours. Yeah. So I think it's important to know that there's an infrastructure here behind all this. So most people don't realize that you know, their sitting congressperson, and I mean, this is the case for some people, is not the one tweeting everything out on their official accounts. They have staff that handle this. But in 2022, politics is very reactive 
It's not very proactive these days. Otherwise, you would be seeing lots of legislation being passed. You would have platforms from the 2020 election coming to fruition. The government process that you learned in like fourth grade civics class growing up happening. But because of social media, politics has become very reactive, where politicians are constantly positioning themselves with messages after things happen in real time. And, you know, frankly, I hope that we get to see some reporting to see how government officials were going through and we figure out where their staff is finding this information. Because it's very clear that someone saw this in his office, flagged it to either him or someone else and was like, we got to get on message about this. We don't like trans people. We have advocated against them before. So this plays into our policy positions. So now we tweet this out. And conservative media over the last 40 to 50 years has evolved from mail-in letters from the John Birch Society to a full-fledged ecosystem with tons of right-wing websites that aggregate reporting from different areas and get it out at breakneck speed so that the talking points then get filtered. So you have websites that are on the fringe, like Infowars, and then different websites such as, let's say, like the Post Millennial, for example, will sanitize it and aggregate that reporting, going to find the original sources on these websites like 4chan. And then you have websites like The Daily Wire that aggregate that reporting and continue to cite saying, we're not exactly sure where this is from, but this is what the internet is talking about. Here are Twitter posts about it. So you have people on Twitter that aren't fact checkers tweeting about this, then right-wing websites taking that and talking about people online having conversations about this, which then slowly gets filtered down and down to, you know, something like Tucker Carlson in his monologues, which is how you get him talking about the great replacement theory and how he sanitizes that for his audience and talks about it constantly. So there's an entire media ecosystem where more and more reputable outlets take the aggregate reporting from less reputable places, sanitize it, keeps the message, and essentially filters it down into talking points, which then get used by other politicians because they're seeing it on the more media literate websites. Yeah, and we should say that some of these sites are not just one-off, even though Daily Wire sounds like it's just one of these random right-wing websites. It's actually an arm of the Heritage Foundation, which we reported last year as a part of the anti-trans hate machine. So it's a way in which all of these things are working together. With all of those important but heavy reflections that we've gone through, we wanted to end this episode by embracing joy, pleasure, and connection. So we are wrapping this year-end recap with a clip from our episode, Summer of Trans Sex, where I talked to someone who is working to center transsexual liberation. Now, sexual freedom is not something that we talk about openly enough, in my opinion, but our freedom as trans people actually starts in our bodies. That's why I talked to ZR, a BDSM instructor and vice president at Kink Out, a space for performance, art collaboration, events, and more. 
Zia is also fighting to defend and expand the rights of sex workers as the director of communications at the Sex Worker Project of the Urban Justice Center. So take a listen to how Z uses kink to explore connections with their body and community and take some notes. A really important point that you are bringing up, which is that these are embodiments and ways of being that people are requesting and that they are taking control regardless of what they're engaged in through BDSM or kink. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is empowering. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just get your perspective from you as someone who is non-binary and for many of us who are a part of the trans community, the disembodiment from our bodies is a hallmark of our experience, right? Yeah. And and living in a world that has tried to erase us and erase our body presence. But BDSM is doing the exact opposite. So can you just talk about for you how this work may be healing and the special ways in which BDSM or sexual embodiment can, can be for us, how important it is? It's really important because, first of all, like there's so much more you can do besides missionary sex. And that includes doggy style. That includes all the different positions that you might see in the Kama Sutra book. There's other parts of your body that you can experience. There's other holes in the body. There's your mouth. There's your ears. There's your nose. And a lot of times people don't understand that unless they learn BDSM because it actually is something you need to learn as well. I will say that I learned more when I was in Amsterdam because I was able to finally just be in a circumstance where I can just be purely myself without any judgment. No one knew me when I moved there. And I remember I asked this one trans woman who's a dom, really amazing dom. I was like, I saw the way you were flogging. Can you just flog me also? I want to I feel that on my back. And she's like, well, in what way would you like me to do it? So we had a little conversation and then she t- asked me my safe word. And then flogged me for about 30 minutes. And I felt like such a titillating energy in my whole body because I felt like I just regained some of the the erotic energy that I wanted to experience that I've never experienced before. And that was just through the flogging without anything else happening. So I was like, wow, I feel really like wet, literally. (laughs) And also, I, I have to say, like, I do porn as well. And so in doing porn, I decided like, oh, I don't see anybody that looks like me in any of these films. Even when I went to Amsterdam and went to the porn library, you know, Amsterdam is like the sex work capital because people know about the red light district all around the world. So you can see live sex performances going to shops and seeing like a really wide range of porn, right? All types. But the black section is usually just the same, black ass and black pussy. Nothing else was there, really. So I was like, I need to figure out how to see myself more in film. So I started doing film for that reason. I wanted to show different bodies. I wanted to be a part of porn uh, companies that actually wanted to show different BIPOC bodies that are genderqueer. And uh, even I started working with Aorta here, which is another company that's actually in the States that shows a more diverse set of what we call genderqueer fuckery. So I feel like it's really progressive to be able to, again, be in your own body and understand you're unique and you don't need to be like anybody else and your body does not need to look like anybody else's bodies. And that takes me out of this kind of binary paradigm where you need to either have hips 
in a certain way if you're femme or you need to look a certain way as a butch. I don't really have those kind of dichotomies. I feel like I have all of that and, and then some. <laughs> and I like to explore and connecting with other folks in kink community, like all the different aspects of their selves and their bodies that are beautiful. And I like to also amplify that and also use words of affirmation towards that so that people can feel more empowered. Well, that's it for our recap. I want to end by expressing my deep appreciation and gratitude to be able to have these conversations and to have your ears to listen to them. We are so excited here at TransLash to be able to continue this journey with you. And each of us sends you the best for 2023. And we hope that all your dreams, wishes, and New Year's resolutions come true. And we'll see you in January. Thank you for joining me on the Translash podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can also listen to Translash wherever you get your podcast. Check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell all of your friends and family while you're with them. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show. And our sound engineer, Digital Strategy, is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash Podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. Mm-hmm.